0: these are all constructs and as these constructs fail we'll start to see that it's all a lot muddier and a lot grayer than we give it credit for Mm -hmm. um it's just that we struggle to let go of those concepts because we don't quite understand how to free fall without dying
1: i am kay anderson and you are listening to lost spaces a podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories they created there, and the people that they used to know. Jess McAvoy is a Brooklyn-based performing artist, songwriter, and musician who was born in Perth, Western Australia. Before they moved to the Big Apple, they lived for a number of years in Melbourne, forging their way on the Australian music scene. We kind of meandered all over the place in this conversation, and although we started talking about the lesbian bar Glasshouse, we settled on the Mixed Night Queer and Alternative, or Q&A, which ran from 1996 to 2013 on Thursday nights at the Builders Arms on Gertrude Street in Collingwood, Melbourne.
0: So I grew up in Perth in uh, in the 90s. I was there from when I was born till 94 and then I went to Holland for five years and came back when I was – no, I'm lying. I left, I left when I was 10, came back when I was 14. So from 14 to 20 I was in Perth uh-huh. and then from 20 to 31 I was in Melbourne.
1: Mm-hmm. And so for those that don't know, Perth and Melbourne are on opposite sides of Australia. Um, and Melbourne is maybe somewhat more exciting. Depends That's on my what expert I do for opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. For well sure. But yeah, do you remember I mean, your first kind of days in Melbourne and what that felt like?
0: I do quite distinctly. I hadn't been there uh before I moved there when I was 19. So it was a pretty a pretty wonderful experience. I remember the first time I actually went into the Central Business District and uh, popped out. I'd caught a train there from not that far away when I think about it in hindsight, but, you know, it felt like a a, a way away Um, and popped out at Flinders Street Station. And I remember (laughs) being 19 and looking around and feeling so overwhelmed by how many people were on the street in Melbourne in comparison to Perth. Of course, now living in New York, it's a completely different game. But uh, yeah, you know, I'd taken on Melbourne as an independent person for the first time in my life. And it just, it really did feel like the world was at my fingertips and I could, I was going to be whoever I wanted to be in that moment. Like it sounds pretty corny, but I really, I still remember that. You know, Mm. I was 19. It was electric. It was, it felt like endless possibility at Mm. the time.
1: And so did you move primarily because of music? Or were there other reasons? A
0: hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean in, in part I was I was and of course again hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh but I, you know, a big part of me was was leaving for the sake of getting away from my family, getting away from my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and Melbourne Melbourne was the center of it. If I wanted to be a musician and a serious artist, that was really the only option in Australia at the time. So I jumped in a car at nineteen and drove for four days with a friend to get across the Nullarbor. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah wow. I did it. I did the Nullarbor, yeah.
1: And four days. <sighs> um, What were your main takeaways about the difference between the queer scenes in Perth and Melbourne?
0: It's You know, it's a funny thing. It, it's very, in my memory, it's very tempered with the different states of who I was at those times. Perth, I was really fortunate when I was in Perth because I became part of the music scene there when I was 16. And so I started getting exposed to, to pub culture and nightlife pretty early. So by the time I started to recognize that there was a burgeoning queerness in me, I was sort of accessing it through the lens of, of music and from working in bars. So I started to meet, there was this wonderful organization um, called Women in Music in, in Perth at the time, and one of the women who ran uh, the night um, was the first person that I fell in love with, uh, who wasn't a boy. And, and so it was kind of through the lens of music. So I, I, the access point was, was a lot sort of smoother, I think, than, than if I had been deliberately looking for, um, somewhere to go or, or, or places to learn how to be queer. Um, cause of course, as you remember, we didn't have the internet back then. So <laughs> it was a, it was a very different approach to kind of figure out these things and to look for, some kind of community. So, uh, through that, I don't know. I, I mean, I just remember, I remember accessing a couple of spaces like, um, uh, the court hotel in North Perth, um, which had a, a sort of a section. That had the pool table in it, which was lovingly referred to as the fishbowl, because of course all of the the lesbians would hang out in that room because it had the pool table in it.
1: This is a um, recurring theme in my interviews. I just have to say, no matter where you go in the world, if there's a pool table, that's where they expect the the, the lesbians the women to go. <laughs> you know,
0: and I, I I'm not mad at it. I mean, I there's something about doing something constructive while um while connecting with someone. I think you know, I, I mean, I've thought about this a lot because as someone who has kind of shifted identity in the queer scene uh, quite a bit throughout my life, you know, now I identify as non-binary. And so, you know, that puts me in a, what category am I in now? Like I still predominantly like to uh, be romantic with, with women, but I'm, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a dyke anymore and that's kind of, that feels much better. And But I, I think that I, I do think a lot about how segregated the queer scene has always seemed to be um, you know, by binary gender. And I think that that's not, it, it it just sort of makes a little bit more sense to me where the motivations are slightly different when you try to build some kind of a rapport with someone where the first
1: port of call isn't necessarily let's go and fuck somewhere.
0: You know, the pool table makes a lot of sense
1: to me. (laughs) Yeah. Although it is also a good, um, space to fuck on. It
0: depends on how many balls are on the table. <laughs> always the one. <laughs> it depends on how many balls are on the table. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, you know. So so being in Perth and uh, you know that was a that was really cool to kind of learn how to play pool with a bunch of people. I mean, I've always liked doing constructive things in social spaces. So. I don't know. I think, you know, and because I was young then too, and it all still felt a little bit naughty and I hadn't really admitted to myself that I was gay. I mean, that, that sort of stayed a difficult topic for me well into my late twenties. So when I think about the contrast between Perth and Melbourne, it's actually more about a contrast of, of a feeling of a certain kind of freedom or a certain kind of, uh, secrecy. It's so more, it's more about sort of my feelings of those experiences than the actual spaces themselves, I think. Yeah, okay. Um and I re- I remember that there was like one situation there was a um oh, fuck what was it called Connie's connections in <laughs> Perth. Um, <laughs> Connie's and uh I just remember being there and we my we, we was, I was probably probably 18 with a bunch of of people and then my maths teacher from my high school rocked up with my old geography teacher and they were like, you know, making out on the dance floor and the geography teacher was married to a woman and all this stuff was all super controversial. But I don't know, the bleed between childhood and deviance and, and, and trying to define yourself in a place where you already had a definition is kind of what Perth felt like versus
1: Melbourne felt more like,
0: Self-definition, you
1: know. Okay, it's really interesting your reflections on that. Uh, I want to say gateway, but maybe that's the wrong word. Into <laughs> into kind of better understanding your own identity by being exposed to other people's identities. Because I had the same type of thing with with music, and I think when you're like the acoustic scene, especially, has quite a, a number of kind of queer identifying women um, that certainly I yeah looked up to when I was kind of coming through that scene and had as kind of a reference point. I mean, you know, not to mention all of that music that came out of the nineties as well. That.
0: Well, right. I mean, and that's, and, and that you make a really good point in that respect where that was a time where we had this huge influx of these really powerful women in music. I mean, that's when the Spice Girls came out, but that wasn't just their doing, like this was part of a, a larger wave where you know, Alanis Morissette had the highest selling debut artist uh, album of a, any artist of all time, a uh, female artist of all time at that time. Um, you know, garbage was around York, PJ Harvey, like all these really powerful feminine figures. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, for me discovering my identity, plus I toured with Arnie DeFranco around that time and was doing stuff with the waifs. And so it, 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 it all feels very intertwined to me because a lot of my, um, uh, holding my identity close to my chest was very much motivated by not wanting to lose my music career. And so it uh-huh. wasn't so much me moving into the world and going, Oh, where's my queerness? How does that fit into my life? It was like, Oh shit, I have this thing that's going on with me that is evidence to be dangerous to me and to everything that I aspire to, um, you know, because there's just too many examples still in Australian culture. I mean, it's, it's shifting rapidly right now because there is a corporate interest in diversity, but, <laughs> but at the Cha-ching. time, yeah, at the time it was really bad. And I, I experienced firsthand, um, quite a few things where, I, I mean, I lost, uh, the interest of several record companies at the peak of my career because they discovered that I was, uh, in quotations, a dyke. Um, so yeah, it was never really a simple. I mean, it's not simple for anyone, and I'm sure everybody's no. circumstances are incredibly convoluted, especially around that time in the world. Um, but yeah, it's just it's just it, it's connected to so much about all of the choices uh, in my life.
1: Yeah, so that's really interesting then. So you d- made a conscious decision to to downplay when presenting yourself as an artist.
0: Yeah, I felt that I had to. and I you know, anytime I spoke about the subjects of my songs, it was always, playing the pronoun game, as they'd say. Yeah. Um, until my late twenties, uh, until my late twenties, I would, I would, and the thing that's, that I found really interesting and, and I feel incredibly, uh, privileged to have been able to experience different cultures around this stuff, especially different English speaking cultures, the contrast becomes very, very strong when you don't have, you know, a different language to contend with. But living in Canada for a couple of years and I went even into a a, a country town and we did a house concert there for a couple of friends of mine and I. And I remember really distinctly, you know, in the midst of my in-between song banter, which I've always prided myself on, <laughs> <laughs> saying something about, oh, and this is about this person and they and they and they and they. And this guy, this cis white dude just jumped up in the middle of the f- show and goes, hey, you can relax, just say She. Just say she.
1: And, and so, were you like mortified, or were you shocked. relieved? I
0: mean, it was like I—I I had like because the thing is, I mean, you know, people's intention is 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 quite clear, you know, in their tone, and and I and it came from such a loving place where he was so clearly pained for me, watching me struggle with this this farce because I just felt that I couldn't disclose, and it just it sort of dropped. The, the veil for me and, and everything changed in that moment. And a couple months later I went back to Melbourne and I performed at a pub that I've performed at millions of times. And all of my, like I had, you know, a good 150 people there that were all regulars of, of my music. And I remember it was the first time that I ever started openly speaking about the people that I was dating or, and, you know, or that I'd written these songs about and, and mentioning their actual pronouns. And I felt the temperature in the room shift. People who had loved me for years, I could feel that it wasn't okay for me to be open. Oh. And wow. they'd known my, they'd known me for years. They knew I was gay, but the fact that I was talking about it openly was really uncomfortable for them. So, I feel really, really fortunate that I've had those contrasting experiences because I wouldn't have been able to clock the level of homophobia that I was growing up with and and misogyny that I was growing up with. That I can safely say that a, a, you know, a massive motivating factor of leaving Australia was to get away from those limiting, limiting beliefs that I have had first hand experience of losing parts of my career to.
1: That is so fascinating. Cause I always mm. like so for, for me, when I started performing and when I started writing songs, like, uh, it's fairly difficult for me to hide my queerness. Um, and so I was just like, Well, I'm just gonna have to lean into this. Um, and and yeah, that that absolutely um cost me opportunities and and um meant that some people just weren't receptive to hearing what I had to say because it was just some dirty queer shit. But um uh in in lots of ways that's really fortunate because I didn't have to go through that experience of like Having people turn away from me, who I right. thought thought were allies, right? So yeah, I'm sorry I, I, that's sure.
0: Oh, thanks. I, it's um, I honestly I, I I take it as a gift. I think, you know, as a as a cis passing person and and a white a very very white person, uh, I've had so few blatant experiences of the disadvantages that I've experienced being queer. And so I think that it's a gift, you know, much like any blatant trauma to, to have a very clear understanding of of why these things have happened. So you can actually do something about it. I think when it's a little bit, when it's more subtle, you know, if I'd stayed in Australia, if I'd never left, I probably would have similar rhetoric, rhetoric to a lot of people that I was around, you know, pre-internet explosion, that it's just like, oh, no, this is just the way it is. Come on, she'll be right kind of thing. And then mm. you just kind of get along and you just expect that, okay, well, this is just difficult. This is the kind of difficult that it is for everyone. Whereas now I know it's like, no, in fact, this is something that we need to fight to change. Yeah. This is something that I've experienced firsthand and it's unacceptable. Whereas before I'd, I wouldn't have noticed, you know, I thought it was perfectly acceptable for me to fucking have to hide who I was for yeah, so long. Yeah, yeah. No matter yeah, how yeah. flimsy it was, but I thought it was acceptable because that's just what you do when you're learning to
1: survive, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it's your fault. It's, it's, yeah. it's not everyone else's fault for being no. bigoted. It's your fault because you. It's my fault. Put it because in my face. Could,
0: but I know, and I also I have a choice because it would be, it's such a waste that I'm not, you know, gagging on cock all the time. <laughs> you know, like I have a choice. <laughs> I could choose. I could choose. To, <laughs> You Know that's and that's a lot of people used to say that no, but, to me, that I yeah. Had but choice. you,
1: but, but you also can't do you can't like be too slutty, you have to be like the acceptable realms of slutty when you're gagging on cock, just like oh to put God. that out there. I just, know, just as just I just need to remind you, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it's only, There's a certain level of, of, of slut that is uh that is acceptable in in society, yeah. Um, I mean, it's so tedious.
1: It's all... Um, But so then, so then, so we like, uh, if you're talking, if we're talking about going to the glass door, glass house, sorry. um, Were you then always, you know, having, having a certain level of uh, fame, were you always feeling uncomfortable there or that, that someone might recognize you?
0: Well, I don't know. I don't know if uncomfortable is the right word. My ego was a pretty big, um, uh, component of my, my daily life back then. So being recognized or, um, or, you know, deemed as a little bit more special than other people was one of my goals at the time. So I wouldn't say that there was any fear around people treating me differently in that respect. um, and, you know, most of my, and this is the thing that's so baffling about being in the music industry and especially at the time being a female identified human doing, you know, acoustic singer songwriter shit. It was par for the course to have a room full of lesbians in the space. It's just that was it. My, the majority of, my and audience, me as well.
1: Yeah. yeah yes, of course. <laughs> um,
0: so, so, you know, it's so, it's so weird. This facade of like pretending that we're not, yeah, yeah. who we are because everybody knows it's just that you just don't talk about it so yeah I mean going to I mean going to any queer spaces at the time was was fairly complicated for me because I was in this sort of like this dual world where I was tr- still trying to figure out who I was by being in these spaces while also trying to hide who I was by being in all of the spaces that I felt felt that I already fit into. Mm-hmm. So, you know, going to the glass house and, you know, there were a couple times where I would get there and when I was dating my first serious girlfriend at the time, um, being refused entry because I didn't look gay enough. <gasps> oh, wow. That, that happened twice.
1: It's never happened to me.
0: <laughs> well, all you got to do is grow your hair long and have big tits, love, and you would be fine. <laughs> oh, <laughs> or, or, yeah. That's um,
1: amazing.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, I had that happen a couple times.
1: And even though you were with your girlfriend.
0: Yeah, and like, and having these moments of going, do I need to like make out with her in front of you? Like what what proof do you need? And this is, a, you know, a butch dyke standing at the door refusing a sentry, so the, you know, there was very much a sense of if you fit in, you could be part of it. And um, I feel so fortunate that I had found music when I did, because mm. that was never a question. If you wanted to play, you could play. Whereas being gay felt like you had to qualify.
1: But, yeah, but there's a whole other set of kind of conditions if you're in a space with musicians performing, and especially if you're female presenting.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's just the case of living in Australia to a large part. It's just a, a, a big part of just being in Australian culture. So I wouldn't have taken that as being any kind of, you know, I mean, definitely there have been the, the majority of experiences that I've had in my life of, 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 Playing with um, male-identified musicians has been that they just treat me like I don't know what I'm talking about. But that's something that I got used to from. Well, it's Ah. just you just that's just how 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 it is. And and it wasn't until I started working with musicians in North America where I started taking my own ideas seriously and starting to recognize that, you know, the toxic masculinity in Australia is so pervasive that you know the men don't even realize how much they don't take me seriously. Oh wow. (laughs) So. Yeah. So, I mean, it just, does. it it all felt very par for the course for it to be difficult to find a space to fit in, Mm -hmm. um, in Australia. And I, and I, I I would imagine that that would be very similar for a lot of people who have had the opportunity to see it from an outside perspective from Mm -hmm. living in other cultures. But we're just so easygoing about it that you just kind of brush it off, right? We just keep. (laughs)
1: going you don't make
0: fuss about it because it's been trained into us that that's not something worth fussing about
1: yeah 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 but yeah and there's that kind of perverse thing of uh if you're the one making the fuss then you're the problem you're not identifying the problem you are the problem right yeah
0: and hence why when I'm standing at the door and they're telling me that I can't come in because I'm not gay enough I'm like okay so how do I make myself gay or how do I you know or is this really the space for me rather than being like well, fuck you let me in all I want to do is is drink around a bunch of queers and like let me do that but
1: do you want me to show you how good I am at pool
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let me prove that I'm gay. watch me own you on this fucking pool table regardless of how many balls there are <laughs> yeah
1: yeah oh wow um, and then yeah. so how do you like uh I'm assuming you went back after being refused
0: Yeah. I think once I gained a bit more confidence and this, these were in the early days that I was living in Melbourne and I'd just started dating my partner at the time. And, you know, she, she was studying gender, um, at university. So I got to sort of learn all these things about queer theory and, 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 uh, bits and pieces about, um, feminist theory and and things. So I started to kind of get a little bit more activism in me and, and get a bit more staunch about my identity and such. So, uh, so yeah, I went back to the glass house, but then, you know, started to find other spaces that were a lot more inclusive. And, uh, and, and you know, so there was this place, uh, in Collingwood called the builder's arms where they ran this night on Thursdays called Q and a queer and alternative. And that felt cool because it was like, it felt, it felt more like a voluntary participation kind of thing that it wasn't like you walk into a room and then you're this, it was that you go into a space and everybody's dancing and you don't know who's going to be there and you don't know, you know. It felt a lot more queer rather than just like a bunch of lesbians and a bunch of gay guys.
1: Um, and so why do you think that is? Is it like so um, Q&A was held in a, a normally a normally not queer space and it was right. one, once a week queer right. and it was mixed gender so it wasn't leaning on on a yeah. particular gender.
0: Yeah. And I think because the organizers had sort of like set it up as queer and alternative, it wasn't like, it was, it was an alternative culture event. So the people who kind of, you know, I've always found it really interesting about like, cause I, you know, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, 10 to 20 years younger than me. And so they, we have a lot of conversations about being queer in, in the age of, of the internet versus not because the contrast is so magnificent. And I think that I've always found it really interesting that spaces – and it was super necessary, right? It was really necessary to make these spaces so people could meet one another and and find, you know, other queers and such. But having that contrast of being in a music community versus a a queer community at the time, it was always so baffling to me that you would get in a room and everybody would like socialize based on the assumption that they have – we all have things in common purely because we're all attracted to people of the same gender, and so to not have actual common interests outside of that, you sort of get this alcoholic culture that are just all getting fucked up and kind of fucking each other because that's really the, the space that you're in. But then when you start to see these, these more alternative spaces opening up and what's so wonderful about um, some of the spaces in New York, like down the road here there's a place called the House of Yes, that their policy and their whole concept of their venue is around cons- consent And so like you have to basically sign a waiver upon entry that says that you won't touch anyone, you won't approach anyone, you won't do anything without specifically asking for consent first. You're not allowed to take photos of people like laying down all of these standard procedures of how to create a safe space. And as a result of that, this space is so inclusive that you just feel safe and you feel safe to be whatever you are. And I think that I've always really wanted spaces like that where it's just like no one gives a shit. No one gives a shit. You just be who you are. You'll meet other people that have fought to be who they are. And that gives you a really diverse range of humans to socialize with. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's always been something that I really craved as a a young queer person was – not a space where I get to slot into a category and and, and adjust my personality and, you know, get the Birkenstocks and the student belt and, and dye my hair. <laughs> and Indigo girl, and CDs. Yeah. Girls <laughs> girl CDs. Indigo Girls CDs and Alain DeFranco and, you know, and wear the tank tops and the leather cuffs and things like that, which I did. Um, but to have a space where where we get to push into all of these beautiful different aspects of of who we are because it's such a – identity is such a complex thing and and i think as we as we get to look at gen z's and all of these wonderful young people who have access to information and the capacity to to mold it into these these fantastical new concepts we're starting to notice that the complexities of human expression it just wouldn't work to have these really super binary spaces for queer people anymore because we don't especially now that i you know i mean i guess for me I was craving representation of like all of the different facets of who I am because my gender's never sat in one spot. I learned mm. really, really diligently to perform my gender female because that's what I felt that I had to do. Mm-hmm. But now, what? What sort of space would I fit in now if we went back to the to the '90s and there's a dyke bar around the corner and then there's the gay bar over the over the road? Where the fuck do I go? Mm.
1: Mm. But and and so is that what you're saying that in, like queer and alternative? kind of was that space for you
0: yeah uh, it felt like that you know I, I had friends that that didn't sit in the binary parts of the spectrum that I would we'd all meet up there and there was no conversation about it it was just we're at this really fun thing and I get to be here with all my friends who some of them happen to be a bit queer and some of them don't and if I hit on a girl over there she's probably going to be into it you know rather than going okay cool so we're in a dyke bar, everybody's going to fuck each other at some point who hasn't fucked who like how do we how do we pick this so that we don't cross pollinate and turn it into drama you know so i think um
1: and how do i indicate that i want to play pool next <laughs> yeah exactly how
0: do i do that without getting <laughs> what is the quiet? etiquette do you what put is it the- the- yeah. Oh, um. it used to be you put a coin down, right, and then you oh. just like strut around like you're the, the, <laughs>
1: and
0: knows what's going on, and then you buy your pint of beer and stare at the table until you intimidated someone. Um,
1: oh. God, the
0: <laughs> yeah, but like I think you know as much as I mean, I mean, I met my first girlfriend at Q um, and A, uh, and. Yeah, it was a it was when text messaging first started.
1: <laughs> Ooh. It was like and the day And why do you say that?
0: Well, it, it was the day the my, my very first text message that I received was from her going I see you across the bar and I was like what the fuck is going on with my phone? And I was like there's a text here from this Alex person. That's interesting.
1: Um Wait, ha- wait, okay. So she had ha- so, oh, no, we had met
0: before that. Hang on. Oh, okay. We had met, we had met in a bar. We had met. <laughs> and I tell you, I walked up to her and the first thing I said to her, no, because it was at q and I actually did meet her at Q&A. She was in the bathroom or I saw her walk past and I had seen her some weeks before at a different bar and she just flitted by and I was like, oh, my God. And then <laughs> the second time I saw her was at Q&A and I walked up to her and i Shook her hand and I said, You are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, and I'm buying you a drink.
1: <laughs> and smooth.
0: she goes, Oh man, I was so smooth back then. <laughs> and she goes, um, She's like, Well, I already have a drink waiting for me, but thank you. And I said, Cool, I'll buy you another one. And I just grabbed her by the hand and I drug her to the bar and I sat her down and I bought her a second drink right in front of the girl that she was with. <gasps> mm-hmm. I was a smart ass bitch back then. Uh. And then. And then I got her number. So then the second time that she turned up at Q&A, she texted me and I hadn't seen her since that night. So, but then there was like a whole three months of stalking afterwards and a whole bunch of other stuff. So it wasn't as romantic as it sounds. It was, it was quite messy as those kinds of beginnings tend to be. Well, yeah.
1: I mean, what, you know, when you're that age, Oh, that sounds yeah. really patronizing. But so, so then the reason that you hadn't been in touch between those two nights, was it because you were like cool and like, Oh yeah, maybe I'll be in touch. Or no,
0: I, I think I was just like such a, um, I don't know. I she she was very hard to get for a long time. She played very hard to get for a long time. She wasn't that interested. She was more interested in meaner people at the time. Oh, it's Isn't funny. It, we're, we're good friends now, so it's, it's funny <laughs> to think
1: <back about> <laughs> Isn't it fascinating? Like the energy that you would have for that kind of thing. When you were younger, <laughs> now I'm like, yeah, okay, oh God, this is too I hard, know. bye.
0: <laughs> I know, I know. Like I talked to my younger friends who were who sort of in the thick of all of that shit and the drama. It's like you have to go through it, mate, but I do not envy you at all. <laughs> you know, I think the, the, the haze of confusion around like how to be happy or how to feel connected or how to be valid in that time, you know, everything is so heightened.
1: Yeah, but also like getting it right. I think like, when
0: does that happen?
1: Well, exactly. Like, you know, you get to a point where you're like, oh yeah, that's not like, that isn't the point. Like you're not going to get it right. But when you're a certain age or when you're like new to romance, it's like, right, I need to find the one and I need to lock it in.
0: No. (laughs) And suck it dry and ruin each other. Repeat the same patterns over and over and over again.
1: But it's fine because we look happy externally. (laughs)
0: I don't know if I ever did Um,
1: So you weren't in Australia at the time Do you remember hearing about Q&A closing?
0: Um, Yeah, I do remember hearing about it closing I remember about I remember You know, once the internet came along And people started relying on dating apps It just sort of I remember reading an article Probably five or six years ago About queer spaces throughout the world Disappearing as a result of a lot of these apps and such, um, I mean, I'm not hundred percent surprised. I think like, as I was saying, I think as culture sort of diversifies and we sort of become a lot more, I mean, ultimately I think the, the, the greater arc of our human evolution at this point in time is one away from the binary binary, you know, in, in so many ways, like we're sort of seeing this huge shift away from being separate. We're starting to all be forced to stare at our um, singularity as an as a energy body, you know, that we're all part of the one. So I think it makes perfect sense that these spaces that sort of thrived upon segregation um, kind of have to disappear. And I think that while it's a massive shame that we're losing the nostalgia for these moments where we got shown a certain kind of freedom I think that to make real lasting freedom that these are some of the sacrifices that need to be made.
1: And so then what do you think is the replacement?
0: I think it's spaces like the House of Yes. Okay. I think it's spaces like what you see in New York and that you've seen in New York for a long time where, you know, queerness is the frosting on a community of creatives and, um, because more often than not, you know, we are the people who live on the fringes of society because we have to. And so from that vantage point, we have more to say. We've got more critical thinkers because we're forced to be. So to just identify us by the people that we sleep with, I think, is really, really limiting when we can be identified by the valuable contributions that we can give to society from a vantage point of being excluded but still passing or included and still excluded and, you know, to have sympathies with communities that are different to us um because we're used to being different
1: yeah but and so what happens then when uh like integration is a horrible term to use at this time but like what happens when queerness is more integrated into the mainstream and there isn't that otherness necessarily
0: that you I well, I think it just depends on it depends on the, which parts of society. I think there's always going to be ingrained fear of otherness. I think that that's just how we survive. That's how humans are wired. But I think that as the conversation gets wider, I believe that people who would otherwise identify themselves as exclusively straight don't anymore. I think that there's the more that we're exposed to one another, the more we start to realize how alike we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's always going to be spaces where people feel safe to just be, you know, around other people that sit in a closer identity um, space with one another. But we're heading that way. We have to, we have to all be able to see each other as, as the same. Um, and, I mean, you know, with, with, with the systemic racism that we're all kind of looking at at the moment, It's the same thing. Like you look around, it's like, oh shit, (laughs) we are actually all one race. Mm. We are all one race. We've always been one race. This segregation by color was was created during the Spanish Inquisition. This was something that was created to identify people on site whether or not they were Christians. It was manufactured to control and make money. It's not an inherent human behavior. Neither is to segregate us by by color by sorry by sexuality or gender. This is all, these are all constructs. And as these constructs fail, we'll start to see that it's all a lot muddier and a lot grayer than we give it credit for. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just that we struggle to let go of those concepts because we don't quite understand how to free fall without dying. You know, we don't know how to surrender without sacrificing everything that we trust. Um, So I just think that anything away from what we've known is just a step further towards this future that we get to manifest in whatever shape we think is most awesome so you know so like and that's and i think that that's what our job is moving forward is to start believing that there are possibilities beyond what we've seen before because it's the only thing it's the only thing that can come after all this chaos
1: Did you ever go to Q&A? Uh, well, if you did, I would love to hear from you. Tell me your stories and share any photos or anecdotes you have through social media. You can find me on all platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, under the user handle kandersonmusic. And you can find out more about Jess at www.jessmacavoy.com. Lost Spaces is not only a podcast, but a concept record as well. I've been writing songs about queer venues and the people who used to live their lives there, and will be releasing songs over the coming year. You can hear the first single, Well Groomed Boys, which is also playing underneath my talking right now on all good streaming platforms. If you liked this episode, I would really appreciate if you subscribed left a review on Apple Podcasts, or just told people who you think might be interested. I am Kay Anderson, and you've been listening to Lost Spaces.